So hard questions never have easy answers, or difficult questions never have simple answers. That's the thesis of this podcast. And here are the questions we're going to be answering today. This is a tough one. Does our obviously racist history in America matter to our life today? By obvious racist history, I mean things like the forcing of black slaves to come to America, Jim Crow laws, sharecropping, voter disenfranchisement, these obvious things that everybody agrees happened. Here are two easy answers to that difficult question that I think are both wrong. Answer number one, it does not matter. The racist history does not matter at all to our place today. Everyone has a chance in America to make something of themselves. Crying about the past accomplishes nothing. And anything we might do to try and mitigate the effects of a racist past are themselves racist towards whites. This simplistic view is wrong for a few reasons. Math, I think it disregards a lot of math, and it really disregards some kind of bold-faced historical facts. But here's another wrong answer. Everything in America is actually about race and racial bias. I am chiefly defined by my identity as a white male. Our guest, Drew, is chiefly defined as a black male. This view collapses all the complicated nature of the effects of a racialized past into two simple identity groups. For instance, this view ignores the real problems of the breakdown of family structures in poor communities of color, like the absence of black fathers. And of course, the previous easy answer, that the racist history doesn't matter, also ignores the effect that hundreds of years of racist policies will have on the family structure in poor communities of color. So we need to acknowledge both that there has been an effect that hurts families, but we also need to acknowledge that family structures matter and individual responsibility and choices of individual fathers matter as well. But if black men are jailed for the same crimes at a higher rate than white men, that means fewer fathers in homes for no good reason at all. That is a reason unrelated to personal responsibility that a black father might not be in a home. So, a tough question. The answer is not going to be easy. Another difficult question, what is racism? And I'm not going to give two views here because Drew does a really good job of explaining this in the interview. But he distinguishes between a thin definition and a thick definition of racism. So, look forward to that. My guest is Drew G.I. Hart, and I'll let him introduce himself. Drew, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself so we know who we're hearing from. Yeah, so um, thank you for having me, first of all. And um, yeah, I, um, I'm a new professor, just started teaching uh, this semester. Um, and so I teach theology and I teach courses like African-American theology, as well as a course called The Politics of Blackness and a whole range of other stuff. Previously, before that, though, for the last 10 to 15 years, I've been working with young people, particularly uh, young people of color in the church uh, for inner city after school program. I've done a lot of anti-racism trainings and stuff like that. And I used to live in Philly prior to um, taking this job. And there I had worked with various local organizations in the community. And so um, that's kind of the experience that I come with is on the ground, some of those community efforts, but also um, pastoring. And so 
kind of made this transition towards teaching and education and scholarship as well, and trying to bridge some of that, live into a little bit of both of those things at the same time now. Is it hard to bridge that gap? I mean, I just got back from an academic conference, and I find myself like every day now thinking through the chasm between how an academic paper is presented at a conference or is published in a peer-reviewed journal only for other professors. The, The chasm between that and like just people in the pew or having their breakfast or driving to work who don't speak academic ease, you know, are there particular challenges around racism or is that just a general problem to be solved? Well, I mean, the chasm is real. Let's, let's keep that up front. The chasm is real. Um, and there's a huge gap and there's a problem, right. Of, of how the Academy can kind of just speak to itself in, in, in vernaculars that people can't understand. And so, um, that gap, exists and it exists in almost every realm, including to some degree, even in terms of black theology and um, black womanist theology and all that, as it relates to the everyday lived faith and politics of everyday black folk, right, in the community. Um, So the gap is there. I think that there's much more attention and awareness of that gap in probably, let's say, a black theology session than maybe like, you know, some of these other Hmm. sessions going on. So that gets talked about. I mean, I can't remember a, a AAR session where that has not been addressed. And there are folks who are trying to, you know, bridge that gap as well. Certainly my own work tried to do exactly that, right? Refused to talk to other scholars, but to take what I learned um, in the classroom and from my readings and all my scholarship and, and put that to work so that, you know, my grandma could understand it um, and, and find it useful. And so that's kind of my approach. Yeah, that's, I often say, like, because I'm really interested in theology as well, and and sort of the deeper philosophical questions, if I can't explain it to my wife, who has a college degree, but doesn't really care about philosophy, if I can't make her realize why it's important, then it might not be important. Right, right. (laughs) Absolutely. Anyway, so we're going to talk about the history of racism in America, which is, we kind of talked and we decided on this topic, we're not going to talk about racist attitudes in general. We're not going to talk about the current moment as much. We're talking about what has happened in the past and does it matter? And if so, why does it matter? And how do we sort of bring that into our daily experience? So we're going to confine ourselves for the sake of this conversation to like the last hundred years or so and just leave the civil war (laughs) off to the side, just because it's such a big topic. But before we do that, can you define racism for us? And are there are there different types of racism or are there different ways that racism is manifested in the world? Yeah, yeah. So great question. So usually I often say that um, in everyday conversations, usually there are two opposing definitions of racism that are kind of floating around in society. One is what I would say is a very thin definition, which is usually people mean, you know, that you're prejudiced or hateful towards another person or a group, right? And so that's yeah. kind of a very thin definition that people usually operate out of. But I think a more helpful and meaningful, thicker definition of racism understands racism as a system, just kind of like you'd think about capitalism as a system or any of the isms, right? Um, and it's something that people, um, that it can organize our society. It's a way in which people can believe in it, right? It's an ideology. It can be a system of justification um, to explain the way things are and, and 
for us to think that it's normal rather than seeing something really strange and bizarre happening around us. Um, so I think there's multiple ways of doing it. But I think most importantly, to understand that racism as it develops in the West, right? So we're talking specifically about how it developed in the West and particularly in the United States. It's a system that basically um, promotes white supremacy in our society. That is the social advantaging of white people, or at the very least, I would say psychologically advantaging, right? Giving people a sense of superiority. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like poor white folks who maybe are economically exploited, but yet still have this identity right, um, of whiteness and how that shapes who they identify with, who they belong with, um, and the kind of world that they're willing to defend. And so racism, if we're not this thin definition talking about, you know, someone's intentions or their prejudice and matters of the heart, but we're really talking about how we organize our society and the justifications, the ideologies, the racial identities that we carry and how that shapes us in everyday life, um, then all of a sudden we have a robust way of looking at and analyzing what's going on all around us all the time. And those things then all of a sudden you can measure and see that there's things that are widespread patterns, right, all across society that we can actually take note of. And we don't have to worry about if it was somebody's intent or not, because we can see that there's racial outcomes that are playing out that we have to take seriously. Okay, so a couple things I want to ask about in that very well said and packed answer. White supremacy, that's another word, uh, phrase that I think we should be defining. Most of my life, when I hear white supremacy, I think of American History X or, you know, I, I grew up on punk rock, so I think of like skinhead punks go to hell or whatever, you know, no Nazi punks allowed. These kind of like subcultures of like avowed white supremacy, but it's almost like the distinction between a racist attitude, a thin definition of racism and a thick definition of racism, which is like includes systems. It sounds like you're making the same delineation between white supremacy, the attitude and white supremacy, the result of systems or like white supremacy, the effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very, just like you said, um, you know, So sometimes we get stuck with these terms and we're kind of remembering, you know, right, civil rights documentary films, right, or people are getting hosed down and stuff. And we're like, yeah, that's racism and that's white supremacy. And so we got our definitions from like 60 years ago, but we never take the time to think about how does it morph and mutate and take life in the 21st century, right? And so white supremacy for me certainly is not just, you know, um, saying the N-word or burning a cross in, in somebody's yard, but it's the ways in which... We have been socialized, all of us, every human being in America, right? We've been socialized to norm valuing whiteness and devaluing blackness. And by that, it's to say that there's a racial hierarchy, an unconscious one that we've just kind of gotten accustomed to assuming and living by um, in society. And I guess a great example that I often use is um, the Clark Dahl experiments from the 1940s. So in that case, they did these experiments where they had one kid at a time would look at a white doll and a black doll, and they'd get a series of questions. Which one is the beautiful one? Which one is the ugly yeah. one? Which is the good one? Which one's the bad one? All these questions. And of course, you know, most of these white kids at that time, they all positive attributes to the white doll and negative ones to the black doll. What was interesting about that research was that the uh, black children also did the same thing they were more likely to give positive attributes to the white doll 
and negative attributes to the black doll, even though they would also then be asked, and which doll looks more like you? And then they point to the black doll. And so it shows in a way that they had internalized preferencing whiteness in all different kind of ways. It's more beautiful, as right, as good, as innocent in the world. And blackness is everything bad and negative in the world. And these things happen unconsciously. Any human being walking in America has to face the realities of white supremacy, because as human beings, we all are susceptible to internalizing these things. Certainly the white kids reproduced it at greater uh, depths than the black kids did, but all of us have that temptation. Now, I guess people would say, well, that's the 1940s. What's that got to do with today? That same study has been redone tons of times in the 21st century. And what they found is that a lot of similar results, right, that people are internalizing white supremacy, these unconscious kind of subtle ways of preferencing whiteness and giving white people the benefit of the doubt and different things like that and seeing blackness as negative and as bad. And so when, when I say white supremacy, I mean a racial hierarchy that is unconscious to us, right, that we just kind of live by. Or another way to say it is some people say it's a value gap, right, um, a value gap in that we value white people more than we value black people and other people of color, right? Um, and so that's just another way of getting at it. And so these things can be very subtle. It doesn't have to be KKK activity. It can be well-meaning, well-intentioned people engaging and living by white supremacy. Because again, just to live in America, I, I would say, makes us all susceptible to having to actually resist it intentionally. Okay, so I'd like to give an example of a policy. I always give this example, and so the listeners are probably sick of it, but it's about public school funds being determined by property value, okay? Now, this is very clearly an issue of economic disparity continuing, right? So the wealthy families, their houses are worth more, their schools get more funding. This is, I don't know if this is every state, but this is certainly California and Washington, the states where I've lived, yeah. You know, wealth breeds more wealth and the poor communities have less funds that they don't have the new textbooks that they, they can't bring in as good of teachers, yada, yada, yada. But now I would think that many people would want to make the argument that has nothing to do with race. That is about economics. I mean, it's just the if you want to fix that policy, there's no racial item you have to address. You simply change the fiscal policy to no longer preference the wealthy communities and to equal it out between wealthy and poor communities. Is there a racial element to that school funding issue or is that just an economic issue, but how a child ends up in one of those schools is the racial issue. Can you help me kind of separate that out? Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, these are important questions and I think race and class have always been difficult conversations to have precisely because on one hand, they can, and sometimes they are treated as completely separate topics. And on another yeah. hand, there's overlaps and then areas where they're not exactly the same thing. And so I think it really gets hard to parse out. I would say that, you know, if you look historically, race and class have always had deep intersections and overlaps. Um, and so rarely are there moments when we can talk about economics and class and economic issues that are facing everyday folks and not deal with race also. Going back, I know we're not, we're going to mostly talk about 20th century, but like <laughs> all the way back to like slavery, literally, you know, one of the challenges was you had indentured servants. The first Africans brought over were indentured servants, not slaves yet. And so they were working alongside English indentured servants as well. But race was used to kind of wedge and help these English indentured servants have this kind of sense of superiority 
so that they did not come in solidarity with those who had the most concrete economic realities as they had, right? Which would have been these African um, indentured servants. So certainly one could look at economics alone at that time, but to see how race and class are functioning at the same time always illuminates much more because race in some ways was meant to divide, right? Not only um, to give power to elites, but also to divide poor whites from other people of color who are struggling at, at the same time. Uh, when you ask questions about, you know, issues around like funding uh, and education, I mean, there's no question. And this, you know, I think it would take me a little more time to prove my case. So I'll just make my point and, and people can kind of look it up themselves or, or, or think about it for themselves. But I mean, there's a way in which the kind of justifications that have arisen in terms of like, for example, people will say, I just want to give my kids the best, right? That's kind of you. Yeah. So that's a, the argument for why, you know, it's okay for me to keep hoarding this money. Um, meanwhile, other people are living in a scarcity of opportunity and education and access to jobs and livable wages and all these things, right? I mean, so the the very logics behind that though a lot of times like we don't realize that through our history because poverty got associated with black people there's a kind of response that people have to issues around poverty even though it's going to also hurt other folks as well there there's like an unconscious bias so when people talk about like the inner city or urban problems these are code words for poor black folk, right? In terms of people's minds, a lot of times, thugs and welfare queens and stuff. Again, these are code words. And, and, and so there's been a deep association with poverty and blackness. And, and so people um, respond differently now than they did in the past to like issues around helping poor folk, right? When, when that wasn't the case, when government programs were primarily helping poor white folks, people had no problem with that, right? Mm. <laughs> At least a, lot, a large, vast amount of white people had no problem with that. Now that it's associated with blackness, then all of a sudden um, people get hesitant about oh, redistributing and big government intervening in ways that shouldn't and all these kind of things. And I think that um, that behind it, yes, there's a huge economic issue, but behind it, there's these unconscious, unexamined issues that our society and our culture has allowed to play out that shapes our discourses and our imaginations around them. Okay, so what's what's the evidence for that last claim that you know, when government programs are helping, you know, whites or the dominant culture, there is less outcry. Like, is yeah. that measurable? Well, it's historical, I would say, in terms of like, you know, when we're looking at like the Homestead Acts and the GI Bills um, and all these land that was given and was it the, the, the Great Deal and all these things that were created to help poor white folks who were struggling during the midst of industrialization, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they were focused on poor white families and giving them access and opportunities. So these are huge, massive government handouts, we could say, compared to anything that goes on today. And yet, you know, some of the very beneficiaries of these programs um, now are some of the greatest, you know, opponents of any kind of safety welfare net at all. Um, and it's just ridiculous, I think. There's a hypocrisy to it. Well, yeah. So I, I guess what I'm just trying to do, and what I kind of am always trying to do on this podcast is is just, I'm not trying to sort of say, well, Drew, you're black and I'm white and I know, or you know, anything like that. I'm just trying to ferret out different arguments from each other and separate them out yeah. if, if they're separate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So let's let's talk about this for a second. The logical connection between perhaps a family that's been in America for, let's call it 150 years. Great, great grandpa got two acres and a mule in Oklahoma for free. 
40 acres, <laughs> two acres. Am I doing some sort of Noah's Ark, two mules thing? Okay. Wouldn't matter because mules can't reproduce. Anyways. Okay. 40 acres and a mule. Right. Yeah. And then maybe grandpa got the GI bill and then whatever. The rest is just call it standard middle American family history. So then that person, okay, becomes a conservative for whatever reason. And they're like a Ted Cruz style, you know, small government, get out of my hair. I don't want entitlements for people who didn't work hard. Now, there's obviously a hypocrisy there or there, there's at least a blind spot, right, in terms of working hard. Because if great grandpa got 40 acres for free and after grandpa served in the military, which, you know, is a big sacrifice, but he also had no choice. Conscripted right, but there are also the... black folk who served but didn't receive those same benefits also. Oh. That's what I want to remind people. Like for the GI Bill, um, that there are black folks who were not benefiting from um, their government service as well. And so they would go overseas and then come back and not reap the same benefits that white veterans were receiving. Okay. Uh, I want to circle back to that because I didn't know that. But I'm just saying, okay, so a person today, a small government conservative, there is a, yeah, yeah. There's a blind spot with sort of not realizing, oh, grandpa had the GI Bill and great, great grandpa got 40 acres for free. And our family's kind of social capital is partially a result of those two huge government handout programs. But is there a racial element to that? Again, it's kind of my same question. um, And not that you're not convincing me. I just, I want to be clear about this. There's a blind spot economically to that argument, but is there a racial component? And so maybe that's your answer. So were black Americans not given the 40 acres? Were they not given the GI bill? You tell me. Yeah, and so that's precisely is that there's a huge disparity in terms of how uh, white people and black people are being treated at the time. So black people are not having access to Homestead Acts. They're not getting access. A very small percentage got access to the GI Bill. And so there's these great disparities of wealth that are being created over time, not just for the elite's economic class, right, the plutocracy, but uh, but we're talking about everyday folks, that there's this gap of wealth that's growing so that while people are getting access to land and opportunities, and just by being white, they're able to have access to education or at least to do business, right? Um, and for people to actually go and attend and actually come and visit their shops, right? Just basic stuff. That there's an opportunity for wealth that will grow out of that versus being secluded into, you know, a community. Uh, I mean, as Eddie Glaw calls it, opportunity deserts, right? And where, you know, not only being denied all these government handouts, not only are you moving out of a place where people didn't have any land ownership, any home ownership, just no wealth at all, right? But then often, you know, these same families, I mean, money is actually moving in the opposite direction. So because people are coming out of deep, stark poverty, you know, money's helping to pay and help grandpa and other it's going in the other direction. And people are already struggling and they've got to move it in the other direction versus people getting an inheritance, right? Receiving money from their parents. Um, That's a mostly, until recently, a mostly white thing in in America. Even if people think it's just small amounts, a house or whatever, these are huge things that you shouldn't take for granted because for most black, I mean, even today, I think one out of four African-Americans don't own their own home, you know? So the wealth disparity is much greater and it has a direct result of both, which is, I think, is your question, both historically, there's a reason for that, right? But then also there are ongoing obstacles, economic obstacles and barriers. So, I mean, there's been tons of studies looking at 
job employments. And um, for example, when they send out resumes, what the, the one university study sent out resumes with what they call traditionally black sounding names and traditionally white sounding names with the same, you know, criteria and everything, send them out. And of course, I mean, I don't remember the exact number, but black folk had to send it out so many times more just to even get, you know, those same opportunities. So the, there's a, a compiling aspect to all of these things when it comes to race, economics, opportunities. Am I answering your question or do you want me to specify a little more? Yeah, no, that's good. And that, that makes me think back to uh, episode six of this show with Trisha, and she was talking about the study among partners at law firms. So they sent out these briefs for these guys to grade, give them a grade and like, you know, make notes on them. And they actually even kept the names the same and just wrote in a different race, exact same brief, whatever. And the, the African-American quote students, cause they weren't real people. It was the same paper, you know, got more notes back. They got worse scores for the exact same work. So that they were trying to show and did show, sounds like, that there's a bias going on uh, that's totally unconscious, even among, you know, partners of law firms who are supposed to have, like, sort of the clearest thinking of anybody in the world, except philosophers. Shout out. So I want to agree with what you're saying and, and give an example. You know, for instance, I live in Seattle where home prices are uh, rising sort of ridiculously and have been for the last four or five years. And if someone is able to get into that housing market, especially you know with the help of parents or something like that, we're talking about a very significant amount of benefit. So say you had some help and you were able to get into a $250,000 home in an inexpensive area five years ago in Seattle. Well, in most neighborhoods in Seattle, that house is now worth around four or $500,000. If you put 5% down on that $250,000 home, that was 12000 You have made $200,000 of equity that you could now take out. For instance, if you needed to go to grad school, get your MBA, if you wanted to open a shop, that's real. When people can buy a home, if they put 5% down and the home goes up, they are mathematically leveraging that investment at a 20 to 1 ratio, which is different than putting cash under the mattress or even in your even in a savings account, right? That's active investment and investment works exponentially. It multiplies on itself. It doesn't multiply on the original investment. And so, I don't know, that's just an example. I really agree really agree with that. What I'm trying to do, as I think it's becoming obvious by now, is I'm trying to make the link between the economic and mathematical realities and the racial realities, which I think is is becoming clearer. But that's what I keep pushing for, uh, for myself and for anybody else listening. So can we talk about the Homestead Act and the GI Bill or anything else like that now in the specific? Do you have numbers for how many African Americans were not able to take advantage of this or what any sort of percentages or something like that. Yeah, so I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. If people are interested in looking up, I mean, the the main source that I've gotten my information from um, in general from on issues around race and class is there's a book that came out a few years back. I guess it's getting a little dated, maybe 10 years ago, but it was called The Color of Wealth. And it does a lot of history around economics um, and some of the economic obstacles that people faced. 
and so not just for African American community, does it chapter African Americans, Asian American, I mean just different yeah. groups and how that race shaped economic realities for folks in the United States. And so um, for specifics, I would say go there. And there's a lot of other folks who've done that work as well. Uh, you know, that's not my expertise per se, so sure. I don't remember. I have all these numbers in my head. But I can say, you know, that the Homestead Act in general was white welfare program, so to speak. And same thing with the GI Bill. Um, GI Bill, I think there were some, but it's a very small amount of African-Americans that were able to benefit from that after their service. And so these are, again, I'm just small examples of the, some of the many economic realities that were going on. But I mean, the reality is, is that um, most of these communities, because of whether it be, you know, early 20th century, you're talking about Jim Crow and black codes and all these kind of things, or up to today with redlining and, you know, how the current American northern, especially ghettos were created. Who was it? Martin Luther King, he called it a colony, right? The, the exploitation that's happening, that you have constant money being taken out, without money going back in and so hmm. that you have folks laboring and doing all this work segregated into these opportunity deserts so to speak where they don't have opportunities and access where i mean i mean if we're honest let's say even if people aren't doing something out of let's say racial bias right they say the majority of people get their jobs through people that they know right that's a large percentage of people and so even that has a racial element right um that, that, that uh, i think they say 75 percent of white people don't only have white friends right so if people's social networks are extremely homogenous in and of itself, even out of no um, racial bias, although I don't know how you can separate the two, but even if there is none, it still is going to have deep racial outcomes that are going to only continue our very ugly history of racism in our society and its overlaps with our economic oppression. Okay, let's talk some more about some of these historical realities. Can we talk about segregation and can we try and apply... I like this. If people don't like this, then they're not going to like the episode. But I really like this thing where we're trying to connect economic and mathematical realities to racial realities. That's very helpful for me um, and helps me sort of think through this clearly. So let's talk about Jim Crow, segregation. Just yeah. just explain to us. I mean, I'm sure we've all learned it, but we forget this stuff. So just what was it? And then let's talk about the, the same type of thing. How does it enact inequalities over time? Yeah. So, so Jim Crow, basically, I mean, it was uh, racism is always morphing over time. It never stays static. So of course, we all know that there was slavery from 1619 to 1865, about 246 years. After that, um, you have a brief moment, well, Reconstruction, where there's a brief moment where people actually felt bad for what had happened to black folk, at least white Northerners did. So there's a brief moment where there's some brief compassion, and then that gets lost, and they kind of move out of the South. And so there's a deep backlash First is Black Codes, which is pretty much the, a lot of Southern states created laws that pretty much made it illegal to be black almost. Vagrancy, right, laws, and you need permission to change jobs. You need a white person's, per, you know, all kinds of laws that were created um, to target black existence um, at that time. But as those eventually were found to be illegal, then came Jim Crow. And Jim Crow basically was a white supremacist system that controlled people's um, movement, told them their place in society, and confined them to, to particular areas in, in particular. I know a lot of times people think about Jim Crow, and we think about like the water fountains, right? And we think like, oh, that's what it was all about, or the bathrooms. And I always say, no, that was just like the peripheral of what was going on. Um, but really, it was, a, it was a white supremacist system, and some of it was through terrorism and oppression and outright, you know, creating a culture that was 
telling people once again what their place was in society. All through um, much of the early 20th century, you have things like uh, the convict leasing system, which is emerging. So the convict leasing system, you have up to 200,000 black people are pretty much mostly from black black codes, especially are arrested and they can't pay their court fees. And to pay off their court fees, they're leased off to individuals or corporations to work it off. And so it was like a neo-slavery. And sometimes the conditions were even worse than, I mean, People were actually literally dying under being whipped and beaten um, in convict leasing systems. And so it was just a really brutal system of neo-slavery where labor was actually cheaper to buy that than it cost to buy a slave. Not too much before that point. Um, You also have the sharecropping systems, which went through most of the 20th century. Sharecropping, you have basically so these families that are living on the same land. They have no land, no home, no they own nothing. They have no wealth. They don't have education. There's no opportunities for black people. And so for most black folks after slavery, they had no choice but to still work for the very same families that owned them previously. And so they created these systems of sharecropping where the owners would rent them the plot of lands and the tools necessary to to work the lands. Um, But the costs that they would charge them would always be more than the money that they can make for the year. Um, And so that they would get stuck in this system of debt and always owing it. And even when people had a good year, often what you would see is that people would then raise the rent even higher so that people were just stuck in this cycle of poverty. And so these were realities that were going on through much of the 20th century. I mean, I know folks who are still alive today who are sharecroppers. This definitely shapes our world today. So you have all these things in place. You have in the around 1919, 1920, you, you, you'll find that there were a lot of race riots, right? And, and some of them for some communities, black communities that were actually beginning to be successful and creating, keeping money within the community themselves and stuff. And they were like burned down to the ground, right? Um, and so these huge massacres that happened that kind of let people know, stay in your place. Again, these things that shortcut opportunities for communities to create wealth and opportunity over time. And so all of these things are, are, are some of the realities that happen under Jim Crow. And here's the irony of Jim Crow segregation. Like you may have heard, like some black nationalists think that we were better off economically than we are now. And this is why they say so, is that at least during Jim Crow, while most white people would not um, support black businesses, right? Um, but black people for the most part, supported mostly black businesses. And so there were black businesses, barbers and shops and stuff that existed in the black community. There wasn't a lot of wealth moving, but it was circulating within African-American communities. Because they had no uh, choice. It, they weren't allowed to to right. patronize the white businesses. Right. And, if, and when they did, at the very minimum, they were deeply humiliated, right, uh, for doing so. Right. Um, but what happens, one of the challenges is that when desegregation comes, many black people were excited to have access to support, you know, and do business all through society, but it was never reciprocated, right? And so you don't have white people um, also shopping at black business. And so a lot of black businesses actually died out after Jim Crow. So there was actually, some would argue, um, more black businesses at that point. Now, we can argue it's a little more complicated than that, I think. Yeah, Um, because nowadays you have to take into account like Jay-Z and like non-brick and mortar businesses that have exported sort of black urban culture to the suburbs and you'd have to, it would, it would for sure get more messy to determine yeah, get that. More messy. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but certainly you see at least systemically both challenges 
during the Jim Crow era in terms of being confined to these regions in which their businesses are not going to be supported by the broader dominant culture, right? And so the economic opportunities are going to be much greater, I mean, much less than someone, let's say, a poor white immigrant who may come with nothing when he comes to this country, but has access because he's considered white to be able to do business with the broader society. Um, And so these, again, these have huge implications in terms of families being able to earn and develop wealth over generations. It makes me think of the stories of like mining companies in the early industrial period where, you know, they would bring in the workers and they would live on the mine property and then they would sell the workers the food that they ate at the company store. And instead of paying them in money, they pay them in vouchers and they're able to ring up debt in the company store and they end up, they can never pay off all the stuff that they just need to live or you know, maybe they buy a bottle of wine now and again, and they're just like in debt for the rest of their lives to this company. And it's mathematically set up that there's no way out. So if you think about that company, let's just say that's mining company X and then mining company X is publicly traded. Okay. And so mining company X's CEO has a fiduciary obligation to his shareholders And so he is really incentivized to keep the system going because it's very profitable for the company. And yet there's a human rights abuse going on in the way that he treats his employees. Is that maybe a good metaphor for this whole system we're talking about? There are economic reasons that various things can stay in place and they're not incentivized to change them. Because, for instance, like you're saying, I want to bring it all the way back to the parents caring for their kid and saying, well, I prefer my kid go to the best school possible. That's kind of analogous to I have to make money for my shareholders. Like, of course I do. That's my primary obligation is to my shareholders. My primary obligation is to my own child, not a thousand statistical children, right? So then in the case of the mining company, you have to have protests or you have to have policymakers who are elected into office based on the views of the populace to come in and enforce antitrust laws and fair labor practice laws. What's the corollary to these systemic problems? Like, is it the same thing? Is it policymakers? Is it, how do you wake someone up from the fiduciary obligation to their shareholders or their care for their own particular child? Yeah, I mean, I, that's the great question, right? How do you wake people up from from these commitments? Um, I mean, I th- I think, I mean, my my personal leaning is that you know, capitalism encourages right this kind of selfish, kind of greedy approach to yeah. how we treat one another. Um, it doesn't encourage empathy and compassion for <laughs> other human beings. Um, it it encourages competition, right? Um, and it enco- encourages you kind of rugging it out on your own, despite how it impacts other people. And so I think that we need to foster practices and community that that help us find and share life together with one another and care about how others are doing, right, which is not capitalism at its best. I think the one thing I would add, though, that the challenge that adds to it is what I, I, I mean, we could call this the racial empathy gap that also exists within this conversation, right? How does that also shape and complicate things even more. So, for example, you know, usually when our country is going through a recession and, and, and unemployment starts to rise nationally, 
then all of a sudden people are freaking out and they're like, we've got to do something. But the reality is, is that, you know, black folk have always been living in high levels of, you know, unemployment and high levels of poverty and no one cares. Right. So those lives somehow do not matter for most people in their everyday lives. They can move on and that does not concern them in the same way that when white people are, you know, if white people start approaching double digits in unemployment, then, you know, you know, there's going to be policy changes. Right. Mm. Um, but black people, you know, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we were in like 13 percent unemployment. Right. But nobody cared. It was a, I think that, again, there's these deep economic issues, but race always seems to have a way of wedging itself in there. Yeah that it can prevent us from even caring about the welfare of other human beings. But what do you mean when you say nobody cared? Like, what specifically does that mean? No policies were presented? There was no outcry? Like, how do you measure that? Caring? Yeah, so, so, oh yeah, so cared, I guess, would be both would it be whether our discourses, our protests, voices, our um, certainly policies, um, and the kind of policies that would alleviate these issues, that those things are not getting put in place just because black people are suffering at, at enormous rates. Because, again, people know these recessions and stuff, but like black people have always been in a recession, right? There's never been. So like if we're going to freak out about that, then we should be freaking out about these communities that have suffered historically for 400 years in our society. And certainly at the least, whether or not, let's say people say it's not completely because of slavery, whatever, we, we can argue about that later, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that nonetheless, these are communities that have been historically oppressed in our society at, at enormous rates. I mean, I think in, you know, a lot of our larger cities, you know, almost half of the black population are living in poverty. Like, this is extremely problematic. I guess my, my point would be, first on the ground, everyday people should be outraged, and should be demanding of their government and their officials that something needs to happen to address these issues. Um, and until that happens, right, until, so we can't just blame the government officials. If we're not outraged about it and speaking up, then we're exhibiting also a racial empathy gap um, of not caring enough about the kind of suffering that's going on in our country. Okay, so I want to transition that into what the biggest current grassroots movement is right now, which is Black Lives Matter. But I I still feel like I can imagine a skeptic here who is having a hard time connecting some of these dots. Maybe someone who has been told that they're racist a number of times does not feel racist and yet does care about people, but just has had no, I don't know, compelling evidence presented to them or whatever they haven't happened to read these same articles or books and they're just trying to like they're trying to take what you just said and apply it to themselves and they're sitting there going i don't think i have less empathy for black people and this is where i find the math is helpful for me like the the actual data but there is the issue of people's own hearts right where they have to really consider if they do have empathy for everyone that might not always be on racial lines. It might just be, do I have empathy for poor people? I've noticed this in myself about starting about five years ago. I, I realized like how classist I am that I really by default do think of poor people as less deserving and not on par with me. And 
not, I don't know, like not worth engaging with. I really think of myself as better than them by default if I don't check that, right? Right. right. A big roadblock, it seems to me right now, with the left trying to talk to the right, is, quote, playing the race card, which, of course, is often an unfair criticism leveled at, especially leveled at people of color who are just trying to talk about their own communities. But is there a way to algebraize this kind of lack of empathy and 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 show it as just a, a lack of empathy for humans, not just a lack of empathy for a particular race? Someone goes, well, look at Asians. Asians are doing great. It's see, it's not about race. So how do you respond to that? It's a very difficult argument to respond to. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I often say, you know, um, in quick conversations, people who actually know more are at a disadvantage, right, in the conversation, um, because it, it really takes time to really unpack and think about what's going on. I teach a course called The Politics of Blackness, and it's interesting um, how many of the students, both me watching them for the first time read particular texts and not know any of the history at all. But then for them also to say, we were never taught this, right? Um, just some of it is just very, I would consider basic American history, right? About like Jim Crow, black codes, convict leasing, lynching, things like that. And what actually happens um, even just in the 20th century, a lot of my students are like, wow, we never knew this, right? And these are students that wanted to take a course called the politics of blackness. Right. right? Self-selected. Uh, yeah. Right. And so, if that's the case, then even just on a historical standpoint, in terms of understanding how we got from point A to point B, there's at a disadvantage because there's another narrative that is much stronger than the actual history and events that actually occurred, which is the story of American exceptionalism, right? America was yeah. just so great. It's so wonderful. We've always cared about justice. Um, we even stopped slavery and we even, you know, and it really makes America sound great rather than our nation is, it, the story is mostly full of genocide and forcible removal of people from their ancestral homes and, you know, millions upon millions of bodies brought over here and forced into slave labor uh, for generations upon generations. I mean, this is an ugly story. And even when you get into the 20th century, 5,000 black men, women, and children lynched, right? 5,000. This is after slavery, not during slavery, after. And so what, just the history in and of itself, you've got one thing. But then you start looking at like the widespread, like as you say, the data, right? And you can see like, for example, there was a study in New York City that was uh, studying uh, stop and frisks. Um, and I think it was from, I want to say 2010 to 2012. And they studied stop and frisks, thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stop and frisks. It was actually like uh, many officers had like a quota that they had to keep up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just ridiculous how many people. And so they did a study and I think it was like close to around, you know, 90% of the people that were stopped and frisked were innocent, had nothing wrong. And only, I think, about 8% of the people that were stopped and frisked actually had something on them. You know what I mean? Like that were actually arrested for something. And so the idea that, you know, most people want to just give the cops the benefit of the doubt because they have like this special intuition, Right. But it's fabricated. Like, they're human beings just like everybody else. They don't have magic intuition. Unconsciously, I don't think most of them were probably good folks with good intentions, but unconsciously, they are harassing and stopping black and brown people disproportionately, right? And that's just one case. Um, people have done studies looking at even most of the race riots throughout the 20th century. Most of them were in response to 
police brutality, even prior to like people think this is a new thing. Going all the way through the 20th century, most of the race riots in terms of the black communities uprising um, were in response to uh, police riots. People have done lots of studies already showing the disproportional amount that, you know, black people have been killed. Now, I know that there's some confusion. Sometimes people, you'll see um, people say, well, more white people have been killed than black people by police. That's technically true, but black people only represent 13% of the population. Yeah. And so... So you have to account, you know, the proportion of the population and then look at the proportion of those people being impacted by any such thing. And so when we see that, then we see, again, grave disparities in terms of police brutality. But much more than that, I mean, in our moments, and I think this is sometimes not always being communicated, but in the Black Lives Matter moment, what needs to be focused is the moment we're in the age of mass incarceration, where over two million people are locked up in cages. Around 1970, right after the civil rights movement, it was declining. And people thought that, you know, prisons might one day be obsolete because it was just declining. And then, and it was around 300,000 people, inmates at that particular point. And then in just three decades, it just explodes and disproportionately targeting black communities um, and primarily for nonviolent drug offenses. And so what, what they found was that white youth and black youth studies have shown use marijuana, for example, for at about the same rates. That's not the stereotype, but that's the actual usage, which shows that's a whole lot of thing about our own stereotypes right around who uses and right. sells drugs. In fact, they say what is most telling about drug usage and selling is that it's just as segregated as the rest of our lives. White people sell to white people and black people sell to black people for the most part. But nonetheless, we have all these policies that were created, right? These get tough on crime policies and war on drugs policies that were not targeting every community, right? They were targeting particular communities, poor black communities disproportionately. And so what they found is that the policies were disproportionate targeting black communities. The actual kind of policing that was done was disproportionately focusing on black communities and trying to shut them down, right? The drugs, supposedly the drugs, the actual stop and frisks, disproportionately targeting black people. Um, the actual arrests were disproportionately. So when people were stopped and frisked, they were more likely to be arrested if they were black. And then once they're arrested, the actual convictions, were, you're more likely to be actually arrested and, and convicted if you're black. And then the sentencing was unfair and um, more severe if you were black. And even after you've done your time and you are out, um, then you can legally be discriminated against because you got to check the box, right, which affects talk about economics. Um, and so literally yeah. one out of three African-Americans, young African-American men will go through the system at some point in their time. One out of every three. And primarily, again, um, the studies are clear, primarily because of nonviolent drug offenses. And so, I mean, this is a huge, massive problem in our society and it has created a whole bunch of other issues in terms of, I mean, the policing issues were already old uh, and going on for, for a long time. But then it only increased these issues in terms of the kind of interactions that people are having because of the war on drugs. Um, and I think that that is directly connected also to um, the frustrations that people have when, it, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter and the, um, police brutality. Okay, so now we're here at Black Lives Matter without me having to intro it. <laughs> Which is great. It's organic. I was going to ask you what you're, if you're involved in it and what your thoughts on it are. It sounds like you are involved and it is sort of for you the contact point right now between the movement for black justice and the broader culture. I'm just picking that up from what you're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that movement? And actually, if you can, can we connect it? to the history. What is Black Lives Matter 
addressing that we find in the last hundred years of our shared history in America? Yeah, so um, i try to get all those. So I am very much involved. When I was in Philly, that's my hometown. Um, you know, I was involved in marches and I mean, I'm doing anti-racism trainings and encouraging churches to get out and get onto the streets, you know, and so um, I'm involved on a couple of different levels, not a leader of the movement or any of that kind of sort, but I'm certainly involved in it. What, what is it about? I mean, I guess you could say that Black Lives Matter is trying to name some of the lies, so to speak. Um, so in some sense, it's it's doing a twofold thing, which hasn't always been done in our society, at least for a while, which is both to address the creed, the lie itself, but also um, confront some of the policy issues also that are um, bringing it about. Because I think both of those things need to happen. We need a disruption of our everyday lives and the things that we take for granted and we need to change some laws, right, and some policies. Um, and so Black Lives Matter, I mean, it's literally stating, right, that Black Lives Matter, which goes against the creed of white supremacy, right, is which is that some people's lives, white people's lives matter more than others, that white people's are more exceptional, that they're more deserving um, than poor black folk particularly, right? And so, Can yeah. we, okay, but I want to deconstruct that a bit based on our earlier conversation, because here's where I think people jump off the train is the wording you just gave properly understood sounds correct to me. And it goes back to what we've been talking about, but when it just gets rolled out like a campaign slogan with these like really meaningful, big terms like white supremacy and, deserving and stuff like that. I think a lot of people get overwhelmed, but so let's just, I kind of want to correct me if I'm wrong. I want to rephrase that in our earlier language, which is to say that there is a white supremacist structure in America by which we mean over time and in exponential ways, multiplying on itself, white lives are privileged economically, they're privileged in the prison system, they have been privileged for the last few hundred years uh, in terms of inheritance and the generation of wealth and opportunities. They are privileged in unconsciously in people's biases, which is probably a result of hundreds of years of inequality and, and media and other sort of tropes. So that's what we're saying when we mean white supremacy. And from that what black lives matter is trying to assert is that's all false. Like that, that's not how it should be. It should be a level playing field between blacks and whites and Asians and everybody else. We should lose these unconscious biases. If we can that preference white culture or white beauty or white purity or whatever, anything like that. And it should be the case that a person's color and their family history going back 100 years does not make them more or less likely to succeed. All of these things we should agree on because all men are created equal. Is that, am I, did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, I mean, I, I would say also like, you know, race is also like, uh, it's a way of seeing and being seen in the world, right? Yeah. So I can see the same. There was a famous picture from a newspaper during Katrina, where they had two images, they showed these two images, I think you can Google it, probably. They had a white person, a black person, kind of wading through the water, and they have like, 
like they had gone through, you know, some store and looted and grabbed, you know, groceries and goods and stuff. And a one phrase, like I think it said something to like this white person is like, you know, helping to find food for their family or something. And the black person like looted. Right. And it's just like in the same newspaper. And so like the way that we see people and we interpret them, even unconscious, I imagine that that reporter probably or it might have been two different people who did it. But nonetheless, this production of knowledge, right, that produces ways of seeing the world and seeing particular bodies and giving some people the benefit of the doubt and other people being suspicious of them, right, and seeing them as criminal. Like, those are the ways in which when we say white supremacy or anti-blackness and all these things, it's very subtle and oftentimes done by, again, not by KKK folks, but by well-intentioned folks who probably they have black people in their lives that they care about, right? And can still also do that at the same time. So it's not about hating um, black people in that kind of way. It's really unconscious. So I think that th- those are the kind of issues, right? So when I say that white people matter more than others, right? To address that and say black lives matter, right? Is to say we are human too, and we should receive the same kind of empathy and response as every other human being would. Um, and so I think that um, from that standpoint, it has a, a creative way of naming the lie that has existed in our society for way too long. And at the same time, then trying to disrupt our everyday lives so much so that we can acknowledge what is going on, right? And that's not an easy task, especially in a country like America, if we're all busy, we all got our things and we're going on our ways and nobody wants to be disrupted. But precisely, there are certain things that we ought to be disrupted for. And certainly, when there's mass um, suffering and oppression going on, that certainly ought to be one of them. So I want to get back to disruption. Is there a way to phrase Black Lives Matter really specifically toward our history, like just off the top of my head, it matters that black soldiers got the GI Bill less. It matters that black farmers did not have access to Homestead Acts. It matters that black mortgage applicants were systematically denied because of their race. It matters, this is, I always use this one in Seattle, It matters that black would-be homeowners were not allowed to own home north of the University of Washington Viaduct until the 60s. Those things matter. Is there a way of just phrasing it like that, where it's like, because I think that people can understand the unconscious racial bias, but it is so much more invisible, to me anyway, and to a lot of people I've talked to, than are these demonstrable realities, right? And maybe you need to see the demonstrable reality before you can confront your own unconscious bias. Maybe that's part of the job for me as a white male. I mean, I'm aware of some of my race bias and my little brother is African-American and is adopted. I grew up with a half black brother in my house. And yet I still notice this, you know, if, if I'm walking across the street at night and there's one other male walking past me, If that male is white or black, I have a different like neurological response to seeing them. I note it. I feel guilty about it, but I see it. But what do I do with that? Right? Like, okay, I see that. But these, when we contextualize it, when we give the facts and the historical story, right? The the sort of the, the narrative for me, that helps me a lot. Can you fill that in more black lives matter means lynchings matter, you know, like, like what are, you know what I mean? Can, yeah, we're yeah, talking yeah. about history. Let's so, let's connect so it history, to history. Yeah, yeah. So connecting. I mean, 
It means, well, going all the way back, there were 12.5 million black bodies that were brought over for labor. And about, I think they say about one fourth of them didn't make it past the middle passage because they died during that journey. Right. So you're talking about millions of bodies dead um, during that time. Um, You're talking about, again, 12 and a half million made it here. Well, and, and to the Americas as a whole, right? So, so that just, means so that, some going to Brazil yeah. and other places, the Caribbeans, but but you have a, the estimate is about twelve point five million. Some say higher than that, but I think that's the most. And then another, estimate. and that's the three quarters that made it, or no, that's no, no, no. the total. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. So that's the total that made it. Yeah, that's the total that made so it. So that yeah. means that like three or four million million black people, people were killed yeah. for the sake of inexpensive labor. Well, because they were considered, and here's the kicker, though, right? Is they were not considered people; they right. were considered property, right? That's yeah. why we call it chattel slavery at that time, right? Um, they were literally listed. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence, everyday lies, people selling things, listing, oh, bought this and this and this and a slave and that, right? As as they were, they were buying goods, yeah. And so, um, black lives did not matter at that time, right? Certainly after it, like I said, five thousand black men, women, and children lynched after slavery right um it's basically 9 11 it's like the death count of 9 11 that's right that's right there was a Um, lynching 9 11 since slavery in america and 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 what is crazy is because we have unfortunately white people especially early on had no shame in this so we have all kinds of photography of white people posing in front of these lynch bodies people can check out the book without sanctuary it's a photographic um, documentary of the lynching era and you have white people constantly posing even sometimes with children presence posing in front of lynch black bodies and so um black bodies did not matter uh through much of the 20th century either right on top of the racial massacres that were happening at that time the kkk and white citizens councils that intimidated and tried to keep black people in their place and often throughout that whole history the police were often frequently at the center of, of organizing and participating in these events also. Um, and so there's a history of police brutality and, and black people not mattering in that history all through the 20th century as well, which we sometimes conveniently forget. And so when we look now at the 21st century with millions of people locked up, with disproportionate amount of people being killed in the streets in their own neighborhoods. And here's the thing. Whether or not they're innocent or guilty, too often, even when they're guilty, it seems like there's an empathy gap in terms of the way that people could respond to people and try to de-escalate a situation and bring them in alive, right? That that should be the goal, the target. But it seems like when black people are involved, again, the racial empathy uh, disappears. Um, There's a gap there. And so that those bodies, they're no longer human beings, they're no longer people that we should mourn over, at the very least, even if it does happen. Let's say something happens and we had to, someone just had to die, right? I'm not a ideal. I understand that sometimes they're just terrible situations. We would still should be able to mourn the death of others, right? And it seems like our inability to do that suggests, again, that black lives do not matter. So we have a history where millions upon millions of people have lost their lives Um, Black folk have lost their lives in this country since arriving here in 1619. And it's been an unending nightmare. And even Martin Luther King talked about lynching and police brutality, things like that. He saw that in his own time as well. And so we're seeing these things continue in our own day as well. Does the Black Lives Matter? I don't even want to talk about. 
I want to ask you all these questions about, does it matter if there's a leader? In what way is Black Lives Matter improving upon Occupy Wall Street? Does a Black Lives Matter movement need white allies or can it exist on its own? These are kind of like horse racy questions. And I'm sitting here right now, I don't even want to ask them because what I I'm I feel kind of like a Kierkegaardian moment here. Sorry for the nerdery, but like I feel this moment of like I have a choice to align myself with this or not. And that's actually a much bigger question than how should it be run? What kind of protests should they do? Are these appropriate protests? Are these appropriate protests? There's actually a more central question, it seems to me, which is, will I help or not? That backs up to the following question, which is, in which ways can I legitimately help in my life? Like, I can't save starving Ethiopian children, also do Black Lives Matter, also volunteer at my local soup kitchen. Also, I mean, unless I'm retired, I have to sort of, like, people have to kind of choose their battles. But that's more about activism, and there's also talk of just attitude and voting and just general civic engagement, right? So rather than me ask you these horse race questions about the movement, because who cares? Right now, I don't care. Right now, I only care about the pressing ethical reality. Can you speak to two different people? First, speak to the person who has some time and energy and is convinced by this and their heart is expanding and they are in pain as they listen to this history. What can that person do now? Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I always say, you know, find out who's doing the work in your neighborhood, right? Usually in most cases, maybe if you live in like Montana or something, I don't know, maybe there's not. But in most cases, there's folks doing the work already. Um, and so sometimes the temptation is for folks to want to be saviors, right? And to kind of recreate the wheel. And, and that's yeah. not really necessary. We need folks to kind of join in in the struggle that's already happening, right? Join in, uh, be present, put your body there um, and, and be active and, you know, get off the couch, right? <laughs> um, and so I think that that on a simple level, you know, um, just find out what is exactly going on. How are people already addressing these issues and see how they are, you know, different folks have different philosophies. Even in the Black Lives Matter, there's no, sometimes people talk about it like there's like this monolithic movement, right? No, there's the Black Lives Matter movement is movements. It's a whole bunch of stuff, and there's people arguing and debating and disagreeing about all kinds of stuff. So, so it's not one monolithic thing that believes one central thing in and of itself in terms of how this is going to work. But it is a movement in the sense that there's this era, this moment that's happening, and people are mobilized and awakened to these realities. And they're responding in different ways, but there's meaningful ways in which in your local community, you can engage. And, and I think what, what is helpful is that when we look at the local level, um, then all of a sudden you see that, you know, people are trying to be creative about the issues that they are facing specifically, especially in that local region, right? Maybe dealing and responding to um, 
the policing issues or laws or folks who are in office that don't need to be or um, just showing up um, and being present and letting people know that this is not going to go down in their town, right? And so there's different ways that people are engaging. People are creating organizations in their in their communities to kind of address these issues face on. So I, I would just, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to give anything too specific other than to look and explore what is actually happening in your communities, in your towns, in your cities, in your regions, because usually there's some great work already happening and, and there's stuff that people just need to jump on board and be present and be a witness for, for justice in their communities. Are there some websites you can give us that we can put in the show notes where yeah, people I mean, can look obvi- up volunteer organizations? Yeah, I mean, so you can obviously look at like Black Lives Matter chapters, formal ones. Um, there's things like Surge showing up for racial justice. There's PICO, which is a religious justice organization that has different affiliation organizations all throughout the country. So those are some starting places. Um, and there's many more um, in terms of opportunities uh, for people to get engaged and show up. And so even like Surge, for example, you know, um, primarily white group um, trying to figure out, like, what does it mean for white people to to show up when they need to be showing up? Right. And yeah. organize themselves and stuff as well. And so just a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah. And then, OK, now speak to someone who's like, dude, I've got three kids running around or I'm working full time or both. And whatever, for whatever reason, their time is limited and they don't feel like they can put their boots on the ground right now, but their heart goes out. What can they do? Yeah, that's great. And and I think, honestly, the the real meaningful stuff doesn't start with um, that kind of activism that I just acknowledged. um, But it's more what I call the everyday activism, right, which is our daily lives and thinking about our daily choices and decisions that we make. And so it's simple things, um, the things that we already do, but with more intentionality, right? And when we think about, you know, what places you shop at, right? What grocery stores you go to and which ones you avoid, right? I mean, that depends on your area, what kind of community you have. But but there's ways in which we can avoid people that will make us uncomfortable, right? Um, because we feel like we belong or we don't belong in certain spaces. And that race does that, right? It makes us feel like we have belonging in certain spaces and don't have it in others. Um, it's about what books you read. You know, usually most people, I look at their bookshelf and it's probably more racially disparate than, you know, even their friend group, right? Yeah. And so just who are we allowing to shape our lives and our perspectives and things like that, right? So if you already read... Um, be conscious about the kind of folks that you're picking up. Um, who is going to challenge you and disrupt, you know, your everyday lives? In some sense, be open to the being unsettled, right? Maybe if you're religious and you're a Christian or of another, um, you know, religious tradition, you know, maybe begin to explore and check out communities of faith that are going to challenge, you know, how you live and how you think in your everyday lives as it relates especially to racial justice, right? There are lots of communities have been doing this for a very long time. Um, And so, you know, what are those communities that you need to be in conversation with as a part of your already ongoing daily practice, right? So, I mean, these are just some small examples. I mean, who who do we have around our dinner table, right? Who do we invite into our lives and have meaningful conversations with that are going to shape us uh, in our perspectives? And then finally, though, I think the last thing, which is probably the most important, which is if you already are convinced and you already are moved, then be having those conversations with your family and social networks, right? That there's nothing more critical than I'd say the average white person to be doing than to be having some loving but 
firmly truth-telling conversations with their social networks because I think it's too easy to kind of be like, oh, that's just Uncle John, that's what he thinks, or whatever, and kind of downplay it. I often say, like, you are on the front lines, not me. <laughs> that's the front line. Those are the conversations that need to be had. It's not helpful to shut down, to turn away, or to avoid the conversations. Have those conversations in love, but firmly be willing to speak up when people say things that are out of pocket. You know, it's interesting you talk about when it comes to racial reconciliation, you know, for instance, the black church has been working on this for a long time. I think of like Tom's shoes as the perfect example of like how white America just like assumes that like we have a really good idea to fix something, you know, or whatever. Tom's shoes like, you know, ending up in Nordstrom and it's like, it becomes, you know, look, and no offense to Tom, I'm sure a lot of shoes were donated and and whatever, but it's like, that's what we default to. And like, I think of like the stereotypical social justice white college kid trying to think of like the ice bucket challenge version of Black Lives Matter or something, you know, but right. there, this work has been going on for over a hundred years in, in the black Christian community, uh, including, of course, the main arm of the civil rights movement of the 60s. Do you recommend that churchgoers do something like once a month, find a church primarily of color or a diverse church or something like that where they go and worship and make some relationships with people they wouldn't otherwise make relationships with uh, whose faith they share? Or do you feel like that is that up to the individual? Could that have potentially harmful consequences? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that can have good things can come out of that. Bad things can come out of that. It's really it's kind of complicated. Um, I often say, though, that, you know, I mean, the more that you're able to immerse yourself into various communities, right, and diverse as possible, the better off um, it'll be. And I say that because like sometimes I don't know. I, I've heard people say like, well, my black friend said X, Y, Z, right? Well, that's nice. Um, your black friend may or may not have a perspective that is common in the African-American community, right? And, yeah. and no one has a ownership on the black perspective, right? And so in some ways, you know, it's really helpful to get a wide spectrum of, of experiences and perspectives. And then I think the, the broader that is, the more helpful I think it is to understand people's daily experiences and what people are living with every day. So the danger is, is going to any one particular community and then thinking like, oh, this is it. And I've, I'm going to fall in line with whatever they say versus really getting a wide range of perspectives. I mean, for example, you could go to a, let's say a black church. Um, some black churches preach the prosperity gospel, right? right. Um, and have nothing to do with justice at all. Um, and others are in line with a long tradition of the black church um, seeking and struggling justice, right? And so, but you're going to have a wide range of experiences. Um, it doesn't make the folks that go to that prosperity gospel church non-black, but it is, it's just, it's one perspective among many. I, not one I necessarily affirm, but it's, it's helpful to understand that it exists. But then I would also encourage someone to make sure that they get into a justice focused and preaching church, right? That understands Jesus's relationship with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Okay, I have two more categories slash questions for you. Thank you for spending so much time with me, Drew. I want you to talk to a third person now. Just speak human to human to someone who's still skeptical after hearing this. Okay, they've heard everything you've presented. Why do you think they're still skeptical? Yeah. Can you just reach out, you yeah. know, guy to guy, guy to girl, whatever? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's it's complicated because here's the deal. You know, we have 400 years of history and in every single age or moments, right, of our history, the majority of white people did not see their own complicity in the injustice and racism that they were uh, involved in. So if you were to go back to 1650, you know, most white people at that time who were, you know, just getting slavery going in the, in the United States, they didn't see themselves as doing anything wrong. You could say the same thing in 1750 and in 1850, right? In each generation, um, these white communities didn't see themselves as doing anything wrong. They thought they were innocent, that everything was fine, that there was nothing wrong. They wouldn't have considered themselves bad people in any sort of way, right? Um, which is, it's, it's always hard to, I think, to see what's going on in one's own generation. And at the same time, 1650, 1750, 1850, there were black folks who were offering a different perspective, right? Yeah. Crying out to, to their neighbors saying, this is terribly unjust and wrong and inhumane. Uh, we could go moving on into, you know, it was a survey in 19, I believe it was 1946, in which um, seven out of 10 white people at that time said that Negroes were being treated fairly, right? Seven out of 10. So 70% of white Americans in 1946 thought that Negroes were being treated fairly. And at the same time, of course, I mean, this is, you know, this already had been, you know, way before that point, W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells and Marcus Garvey and all these great, you know, folks who've been struggling for justice. Other perspectives and voices had existed. You know, Howard Thurman is coming out. All these great folks are there offering a, a different perspective and way. And it shows that, you know, um, that sometimes we can be so deeply socialized by society, even when we have good hearts, that we can't see what's going on even right before our own eyes, right? It seems so obvious now when we look back at slavery and Jim Crow, black codes, lynching, all this stuff. It, it seems so obvious that what was happening then was wrong, but people couldn't see it in their own generation. And I think one of the challenges is that, you know, it's not about having white skin or black skin isn't what allows people to see or not see. But being socialized in a dominant culture that doesn't want to own the realities that have gone on both historically and in the current world, that is what prevents people from seeing, right? And so I think that my challenge is, I invite them into what I call counterintuitive solidarity. And what I mean by that is to just take a chance just knowing that there's already this long history of people not seeing what's going on in their own generation in terms of racism in our society, right? Take a chance and don't go with your gut, right? Take a chance and listen to the perspectives of those who are being who have been historically oppressed and marginalized in our country. We at least can admit that. Most people have no problem admitting that the first 350 years that there was deep we're racial rough. oppression, right? Yeah. So now that we're 400 years in, can we at least take the opportunity to truly hear the perspectives of others and, and, and check the history, check the stats. People are doing all kinds of work on sociology and critical race theory, um, but then also immerse yourselves in communities where you can actually hear the voices of others. And, you know, I, I believe that people, if they actually are open and willing to hear from others in that kind of way and not just allow, not just going by their gut, um, I think that we can kind of move into a more meaningful solidarity together um, and journey towards justice together in a meaningful way. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so hard. I mean, I, I kind of think of it like being at a mall and, you know, like I'm with my wife in Forever 21. I'm not trying to throw her under the bus here. But 
you know, she and I both know, and I'm, you know, I'm shopping at J. Crew. She's at Forever Twenty One. We both know the problems with cheap clothing garment labor, especially in like Southeast Asia. But it's very difficult to connect that to my individual experience as a shopper or or what a guy who needs a shirt or thinks I need a shirt or whatever. If there was like a little girl with bleeding fingers standing right in front of me, it would be easier for me to go, oh, this is actually all built on something. And it the system of commercialization of clothing, for instance, is not incentivized to broadcast what it is built on, namely cheap labor for consumer right. goods, right? And that's not just in America. That's the whole developed right. world and, and then the developing world, which the developed world sits on the backs of the developing world. And it's similar. It's like whatever makes a person wealthy and well-educated and live in a safe community, that's built on something too. And that system is not incentivized to show what it's built on either because it's a bad sales pitch if you do right. that, right? right? So, okay, that's just another way that I have of thinking about it to try and sort of like wedge myself. And not, I don't think about that just with race, but just in terms of any sort of large concept, I think about right. what about the mall? That's a good example of like a really tight narrative that doesn't allow in its own foundations. Right. For sort of obvious financial reasons. So I almost don't even want to end on this because obviously this is just like a a hard topic. But this podcast always seeks to have guests criticize their own side as well as the opposing side. So this also is a way to speak to the skeptic, I guess. But it's also for the rest of us to help us ferret out good arguments from bad arguments. What are some narratives coming out of Black Lives Matter that are unhelpful? Can you give us some examples of bad arguments coming from the Black Lives Matter movement that are worth weeding out to focus on the good stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that I think has not been very helpful in communicating is when people focus so much on bad police, Hmm. What I mean by that is I, I kind of see it as a scapegoating kind of language, right? Um, we need to get rid of, find out the bad police and get rid of them, and then somehow we will solve our issue. Um, as though somehow the police are more racist than the rest of society is, right? And, and my problem with that is that it actually misses the whole issue that we are all being socialized into a racial world, right? Um, and the police, they just, they are part of us. <laughs> They're a reflection of America, right? Um, and so the kind of singling out of police in that kind of way, I'm not saying, like, I think we need to address the policing system. Um, yeah. but, and, and I'm not saying, there are, in some cases, right, some some disturbing individuals in terms of things that they've communicated. But in general, what we're talking about and what we're trying to deal with is not about bad police, individual police uh, members, but we're, we're talking about a system of police that upholds, we're talking about white supremacy, white lives matter, all these things, the racial empathy, right? Well, how do these things get played out through a policing system um, that is, again, when we talk about like, why is in one particular community, 
you know, Johnny can walk back and forth from school to home without being stopped and frisked ever. Right. It's in, in his whole entire life. He will never be stopped and frisked. Right. In I've never been, I've never been stopped and frisked. Right. Yeah. Right. And yet in some communities, people almost maybe if not daily, weekly are being harassed by police over and over and over again. And then their own communities. Right. Um, that's not just, well, it can sound like, um, it's about bad police, but really it's about what they're being told to do. Yeah. This is a policing system and a strategy for policing in particular neighborhoods. Um, and so I think we need to be a little bit more clear about the systemic realities of policing. Um, not that there aren't, again, some folks who are more troubling than others, but that's not really the heart of the issue. I mean, that that's just getting that, you know, the periphery of stuff. When we get at the, you know, the whole iceberg, right, of what's really there, we see it's a systemic issue and we need to articulate that, I think, a little bit better than sometimes we have. And so some of the chants around like, you know, F the police in terms of individuals and, you know, these racist cops have got to go. Right. That's one of the chants and things. But I think that misses the point when we say things like that. Um, and so we need to be a little bit more precise to name the system. And some folks have. But I think that yeah. that message has not always been clear in articulating that and what the actual concerns are. Wow. Well, thanks, Drew. And that that really resonates with me, too, um, for what it's worth. Who cares? But it does. A couple things. I want to tease the fact that this is not my last conversation with you because my buddy John Rains and I are starting up a theology podcast called Reconstruct, which will be airing early next year in 2017. And Drew, you will be joining us to talk about black liberation theology. So for those of you who are interested in the more theological aspects of this conversation, you can look forward to a whole discussion about that with Drew. Uh, Drew, you have a book out that's getting quite a bit of love right now. It's doing well. People are really responding to it. What is it called? What is the basic premise of that book? Yeah, so the book is called Trouble I've Seen, and the subtitle is Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And it basically came out early uh, 2016 um, in response to all these things that were going on. And my concern, again, is to engage particularly faith communities around having hard conversations around race and racism help them understand in common everyday language what we're talking about. And so I use a lot of stories. There's theory and big ideas and stuff, but I use a lot of stories to help break down what exactly I'm talking about. And so um, it seems to have resonated with a lot of folks. I'm glad that it's um, helping people understand our times a little bit better. That's awesome, man. And uh, we will link to the book in the show notes, which are at depolarizedpodcast.com, as well as a couple of those books that drew mentioned and some websites if people want to get involved in the volunteer work drew thank you so much for your time i look forward to talking to you later and getting our nerdy theology hats on for that one all right well thank you again for having this conversation with me all right see you bud guys so much for listening if you enjoyed this please share it with a friend word of mouth is the best way for this podcast to spread next week we're going to have an amazing conversation with speaker author and professor christina cleveland talking about polarization and grouping itself like why we do it as people and man that was a great conversation i'm excited for you guys to hear it Of course, you can always find me on Twitter at D-A-N-K-O-C-H. 
and you can join the Depolarized Podcast Facebook discussion group. It's great conversations going on there almost every day, definitely weekly. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much.